of March 13th. My name is Justin Hurd. Nathan Steinman. Skyler Deal. Woot. Goddamn the woots. <sighs> you you were the first person I, I knew know, who actually said them in conversation. I know, I know. I, <laughs> it was really weird because a kid, like, a kid that I work with, I mean, when I say kid, I mean, he's only eight, eight and a half years younger than me, but he, he actually said lol, and I was like, they actually say that now? Apparently so. <laughs> God damn it. Um, so is FML FOMO? FOMO. FOMO. Yeah. <laughs> well, FOMO. I've, I've, been, I've been going back and watching Furry Curry recently. I don't which know what is, that is. Anime, it's FLCL. FLCL. Oh. Okay. See, I don't know it as... It's like yeah. one of the best short fully, fully anime cooling. series yeah, ever. I just know it as FLCL. So. Yeah, and, it, and I've only seen those first like three or four episodes. That's all there are, there, right? There's six episodes, oh, yeah. and um, all of them are on um, YouTube. Oh, they are? Yeah, Funimation put the whole series up. Because uh, they just announced that they're doing a uh, a remake of it. What? Yeah, um, some company bought it, bought the rights from Gynex. But Gynex is working with them to come up with a new Furry Curry season. New season? Season series, something like that. I think it's a reboot, but still, it's going to be... Interesting. Yeah. A little bit. Hanging out with Lou, she had never watched Furry Curry, and I was like, okay, we have to do this. So every time we hang out, I make her watch like two episodes of it. So we're halfway through. That first episode is completely mad. Uh, The entire series is completely mad. Like, we finished the first episode, and she went... I think I'm going to need to watch the first episode again to understand what was going on. I was like, no, you're never going to understand what's going on. You know, for Complete wacky, zany anime, zany, yeah. it's one of my favorites. I like it more than, like, Excel Saga. Yeah, we're, we're three three episodes in, and she still hasn't been introduced to Eyebrows. Hmm. And I'm like, oh, just wait till you meet Eyebrows. So I guess I've only seen the first three, then, because I haven't, I don't know. Um, third episode is the one where he has cat ears. <laughs> okay. And he's in the play. The animation's really good. It reminds me of this other film called Dead Leaves. Yeah, I really kind of. do not like Dead Leaves. It's just I wish the animation style kind of reminds me of that. Yeah, I, I mean, I can definitely see it. It's one of another one of those. For, like, I, I swear, all I've been watching is fourth wall breaking, you know, stuff now, and it's just the more prominent than it ever has been before. I don't understand it. <laughs> well, I think what it is is just it really is the condition of our lives. Like, our lives are about our lives on the internet. Right. So everything's already has this meta structure, you know, and like the whole idea of Baudrillard's like simulacrum of just the fact of which is where the Matrix, you know, right, got, right, right. Got, to, got a lot of its ideas of the fact that like there's already this outside, you know, structure that we've invented that is like a version of life, but it's not really life. But now we have like, we've had SimCity and we've had second life and we've had myspace and live journal and facebook and our our lives are about our lives that we live outside but also on the internet and you can be on and the, what and what you can pre- what you present yourself as on the internet, internet versus, versus who what you really are right that's so, why i quit myspace <laughs> but it was just like this whole it's this whole kind of loop that feeds itself and so you know, I think I've talked about this before recently. Whenever I was um, inebriated, I was on Facebook and went, I've got 297 friends. Uh, anybody that I have more than five friends in common with, I probably know in some 
form or another. Yeah, add, 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 <laughs> add. Next thing I know, I have 1,600 friends. Wow. Because wow. that shit perpetuates itself. Yeah, yeah. I now have people that I have more than 200 friends in common with. That you've never met. Exactly. And I'm just like... That happened back when with Poetry Slam. is like, you'd go... I went to we'd go to the national thing meet a bunch of people add them and then all of a sudden it's like i'm no i'm being added by people i've never met before in my life right <laughs> that you don't meet for like five years later and you're like oh I've yeah been, that, i mean online. literally me going to the blue note for karaoke i have run into several people that i do not know but we know each other online now and i'm just like hi i'm that asshole from facebook why that asshole well it sounds better than just saying hi i'm that guy from facebook yeah and so, hey, we know each other online, right? And then they're like, "Yeah, I saw you, and I recognized you, and I wanted to come up and say hi, but I only know you on the internet, and that's weird." And yeah. I was like, "So I, well, I broke the uh, insanity there." So, well, and I've I've tried to read it. It's a really, it's a very uh, intense text, but Guy Debord's Society of the Spectacle. Reading it, I'm like, this is like predicting internet culture, and he's commenting on 1960s French culture. Hmm. He's providing a commentary on 1960s French consumer cult, the beginnings of consumer culture, <coughs> and he's like already commenting on what internet culture has already become of like the fact that it's just this perpetual cycle of the spectacle perv- is is worried about itself, not worried about you. There's a weird, you know, algorithm. Yeah, on it's, going on Facebook, especially if you like want to promote something, you could put it on someone's friends thing, which will go and well, go I mean, up and, and up that's and yeah, and that's kind of that's uh, what I ended up using that for was going like, okay, I'm an author trying to make it. I'm not advertising stuff every day, but hey, if I can let these people know, hey, I've got a book. Yeah. You, you kind of sort of know me. You, you know, I have kids. Yeah, <laughs> trying to survive. Words. Yeah, stuff. Life, money, it's, yeah, hey, bills. <laughs> Let's just try not to piss these people off. Yeah. So, but the part of the reason why I mentioned it is, you know, you were talking about the lol and all that stuff. Is it's so weird how the kids that are in high school and early college treat the internet now, where it's like somebody messages them, they take screenshots of it and post up that person's name to be like, "Hey, look at this asshole." Yeah. And just completely railing against people openly publicly yeah on which there. i'm and like it's like don't, no, like even it doesn't disappear we know that now <laughs> we, we we found that out <laughs> yeah you know those what, naked selfies are somewhere well i was gonna say you know, like on one group i'm on that occasionally posts nudity like one person was like posted a guy's dick pics that he had sent her just like <laughs> look at this motherfucker and it's like well, <laughs> I, I, I mean that that that's now out there yeah. like this this beef that you've got going publicly well and especially if they leave like their name and information on yeah. there i'm like oh my god like don't get me wrong it's fucked up guy probably should not have sent you a dick pic because that's crossing 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 so many lines right not even you joking. know I, I can officially say i am i have never ever ever taken a picture of my dick it has never happened I know it has never happened. I, I can't I say never that. Done it. I I can't say that. <laughs> but I don't think I've ever sent it to anybody. <laughs> I did have a friend from high school that I was scrolling through photos and 
boom. And then I was, you know, and she's like, is that what I think that was? Like, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yes. It might be my dad. Why is it still there? <laughs> and it's just like, sorry. Uh, but, but it's like, that that's a difference between like a generation now. Yeah, yeah. Of I've like people who- Never sent to anybody nev- or anything. I've never I just don't taken, understand it. Sent- tried to troll somebody with a picture of my dick and now there's like there's a whole generation they've all fucking sent their dick pics to people and it's just like what the fuck like see, why is this uh, a no, thing see what they did in my day was uh on internet chat rooms they would disguise a link as something else and it was always to go to shitfreaks.com <laughs> wow which is exactly what you expect it to be nice. just yeah just like uh motherfucker again but not it, two girls in a cup again. No, the, the, this was t- uh, ten years before two oh, girls I know. in a I'm cup. Just, I'm just saying. This like, is just face covered with everything you can yeah, imagine. Yeah. So Ugh. words. So speaking of shit, the Ghostbusters trailer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It wasn't really shit. But uh, awful man. I, I, How dare you my, disgrace that? Trailer. No, my my son has been obsessed with Ghostbusters one and two. So Did I, you post the other day like? Listen to this. I am talking about you posting online. <laughs> That's how fucking meta this condition is. Like, like Warren Ellis calls our life the science fiction condition now. See, like, it go. really is. It's the science fiction condition. <laughs> we are living in a sci-fi future that nobody really imagined the way that it actually happened. Right. You yeah. know, but every day we are, or as Louis C.K., we're surrounded by miracles and we're fucking pissed High about school would have been a lot <laughs> you know? worse if it was the way it is right now. Well, but, I'm in. The, I, I mean, I'm in a high school really often. It's really not that different than us. Like as far as the culture of high school is right, not right. that different. I will say that they have to, you know, actually deal with problems now that they part they didn't even admit existed before. <laughs> back right. when we, you know, mm-hmm. I feel like there were a lot more things that were just pushed under the rug as far as the homophobia, the the you know, you know, and just the cult, the culture of high school was less homophobic. For I mean, I am teaching in Norm, student teaching, or I'm substituting in Norman, so that might be a little bit of a skew. See, but, I mean, because I I remember having, I mean, yeah, I guess it was there because there were several of my friends who everybody knew was gay, but they just would not. And, you know, so many and, people weren't out that came out in the preceding years yeah. after high school. I mean, a guy I knew from elementary school, I didn't find out until we reconnected on Facebook. You know, I'd known him for, uh, I, we went to school together for 13 friggin' years. Right. Didn't know he was gay until 10 fucking years after, year, years after we fucking graduated Right. Almost. Like, no idea. No idea. Had no idea. You right. know? Like, that's the type of, like, repression and homophobia. And I mean, it's still there. But I don't think it's it's as deep or as violent as it was hmm. in a lot of ways. So um, what was I posting on Facebook? You were posting about how you have officially seen Ghostbusters too many times. No, I, I have officially. <laughs> well, that might be true, but I've seen Wally too many. Oh, times. Oh, Wally too many times. Yeah, Ghostbusters. I I've gotten to that point with Ghostbusters that I'm quoting it to my son as we're watching it. And I noticed all the little subtleties and all the music cues, like whenever uh, Venkman walks in and he plays the piano really badly to be like, oh, they just hate this. And then right before he opens up the refrigerator, that same cue plays again. And it's like, okay, that's a nice little touch there. But um, 
No, my favorite thing that Graham, two things that Graham has done recently whenever it's come to Ghostbusters is he always wants to watch, um, it's, um, it's Marshmallow Man, but he says, my Macho Man. <laughs> have you showed him Macho Man yet? I have not, no. Oh, man. But, but, it's going to be so awesome today. You can be like, and here's Randy Savage. Right. But like, <laughs> he, he, can't, he can't say Marshmallow Man, so it's my Macho Man. And then, um, so we, we put that on. But after the Marshmallow Man has been destroyed, the dog's there and... He sees something. He goes, "Hey, look, look, look!" And I'm like, "What is that? Is Nina in there?" And he goes, "No, Oscar's mom." <laughs> Which Oscar is the baby in Ghostbusters too? Oh, yeah. oh, so he identifies uh, Dina, Dana. Uh, Dana. Sorry, yeah. Dana as Oscar's mom. Hmm, okay. Anytime I refer to her as Dana, it's he, Oscar's mom. He said, "No, Oscar's mom." Um, the other thing is that he hadn't eaten whenever my parents dropped him off on. Um, Thursday, and he's carrying his toolbox, and recently he's been going, I'm super strong. And I'm like, okay, cool. And I, he's having trouble pulling up. I was like, are you super strong? And he goes, no, not super strong. And then takes a step forward and crosses both of his arms and just poses <laughs> there for a moment. I'm like, what the, what the fuck is that? that? That's his Bill Murray impression. Yeah, not super strong. <laughs> Like okay, cool. You know, you you got this, and that's his other favorite catchphrase at this moment is, "I got this." <laughs> hey, you want me to help you with that? No, I got this. So, um, but the go- new Ghostbusters trailer. Um, as I was saying, I've watched the new ones so much, and the old one, the old ones, and I've watched the new trailer like five times. Mm-hmm. Graham actually, as soon as he finished watching, was like, "I want to watch it again." And the, we we put trailer. it on, yeah, and then he got distracted. But um, my mother liked it. Personally, I just wish there was some subtlety to it. And it, just the humor, it just, it kind of just seems like it's going to be that same sort of um, what we have now in comedy, which is the static takes with a bunch of improv that I, they string together to be. I consider it like the Apatel kind of style in a well, way. It kind of, it kind of started with Apatow, but it, yeah. I mean, Upright Citizens Brigade is just as right as guilty of it. But yeah. the thing is, is Bill Murray stuff. is just as responsible for that oh, kind yeah. of culture. I mean, I I mean, mean uh, honestly, with most of the Ghostbusters, once you know about it, it's not something I can necessarily hold against it. It's just, it feels different than it did Cause, back then. Because the line, the line at the end, he goes, do it, Ray. And like that wasn't in the script. Well, they, they they didn't even know about crossing the streams until they were filming the scene and yeah. scene, and then went, "How are we gonna beat this?" Oh, we mentioned crossing the streams earlier. Okay, let's do that. Like almost yeah. everything that they were doing, like the whole thing of the bookcase at the very beginning falling down, and him going, "Has this ever happened to you before?" <laughs> First time. Yeah, it, it's like okay, like almost everything Bill Murray did in that movie was improvised. Yeah, but it felt natural as part of the character. Yeah, um, it didn't feel like he was going for a punchline. Didn't feel yeah. forced, huh? Like, yeah, well, I mean, well, and also so that's just also, I think because Bill Murray is very specific about yes. his characters, and I, I could see from now having watched more of Kate. I can't remember her. McKinnon, yes. Watching that. more of her SNL stuff. 
I feel like when we actually see the film, she'll probably be more of the Bill Murray. Right. I and think she of, might steal the movie. She, you know? She's actually the one part I liked about the trailer. Yeah. Is watching her and, the, I mean, the hat and the hair thing was a, the, the it took it a step too far for me where it was just is it the hat or the you know i i like to is it the hat and then the pause and then reiterating the joke again was like okay that might be a step too far for me personally yeah. but but also we don't know how that's going to be we cut don't. in the scene we don't know how it function i mean deadpool proved if right. anything sometimes they don't even use the take that's in the trailer that you know in the actual film and then that's a that's know? a lot of movies um i guess part of my worry is what it's going to be rated I, i'm i'm saying pg-13 i they want to get it, the younger ones in there it possibly i mean i i really don't know what that well, just and pg doesn't mean what it meant back in right when i mean you ghostbusters watch, was released i mean you so. watch ghostbusters now and they say shit and bitch and all this stuff multiple There's times throughout many it, sexual references and but and, but the thing about it that i and it's something that um collective learning just did was oh yeah the color the talking colors. about the colors of the beams which they still have but it was they actually went for scary movie tropes where you know with the 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 dark moody music and leading in but every single time with the exception of dana's scenes every single time there was a scare there was immediately something funny or some light-hearted music something to say it's scared but it's gonna be okay yeah the undercut the right the undercut, undercut the tension yeah <laughs> whereas the sequel actually kind of scared me when i was really i mean graham I graham will not watch the sequel now because yeah. of the tub trying to eat the baby and the severed head on pikes underground. The creepy guy like, but, dressed but, like a babysitter stealing the baby off but, the ledge. But, but the he, he watched it probably a dozen times before it finally got to that part. Yeah. point yeah. where it's like, okay, we may need to stop watching this. But now he's watching the movie Nine, which is even creepier. And at this point now, he will hide from the... He'll request to watch the movie and then hide from the movie while we're watching it. <laughs> and then when it, it's really scary, he'll run over and grab my hand, you know, sit right next to me and grab my hand and have my, me wrap my arm around him to protect him. Yeah, because the image that always stuck me in Ghostbusters 2 is when the blackout's going on and uh, he goes and he's knocked on Dana's Yano's, apartment. Yeah. And, and then... You see the eyes light up, yeah, and light the light, and I was like, that always stuck with me, like from the first time I saw that movie, yeah. it just like stuck with me completely. And what's funny is the fact that there's an Odessa Sep- Steps reference in Ghostbusters Two with that opening a baby carriage thing, right? With the with the Untouchables and all that, you know. There's right. just, there's all these subtle nods. Well, to, and the thing that's interesting is that. Ghostbusters 1 is actually more for kids than Ghostbusters 2, but they specifically aimed at making Ghostbusters 2 more for kids, like by making it more family-friendly by the fact that all the Ghostbusters have stopped smoking yeah, and all this stuff. And it's just like, no, actually, this one is a lot darker yeah. and weirder. Like, I, I don't see it as the redheaded stepchild of the well, two it's, movies. It's very much more Harold Ramis's, uh 
kind of the, the tone. Well, it is the the other big difference. You know, we're getting then totally Ibrahim, into yeah. the uh, the intricacies of these. The other thing that's kind of weird about it is that Egon actually has emotions. Yeah, and the second one, like he's smiling, and whenever Dana Dana kisses him, just you know, on the cheek, he kind of does this like body movement thing. Yeah. He's like, mm, "Yes, that was very nice." Yeah. So, Egon, yeah, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. He's definitely trying to make his character more humorous. But that was one of the things I love so much about the original is that everything I'm always serious. Yeah, and he's so deadpan in that first the enti- movie entirely. And it's just like they just seem well, but to they like, and they do some of that in the when we first meet Egon in the second movie, when Dana goes and visits him. Yeah, that's the like he's much about. he's much more like deadpan and well, he, he's examining her with like such quick movements and stuff, and just like it's so it's it's such a great physical comedy scene because of the kind of touches that they add with it right but so i mean i kind of like the idea of the ghost possessing and the power of pain compels you line but it you know i like the first slap and then the scream was like uh you know recut where it was just one would have been great but i you know i don't know it i'm depending on the rating honestly that's kind of my thing there is i'm thinking of Personally, I just, me, you're, if you're going to take your little boy to see it, would you? If it was a good enough rating, I'm just. I, I'm. I mean, it really just kind of depends. I'm. I'm it, sure he's going to want to see it because he loves the Ghostbusters so much. How like, old? How old is he? Three. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The first Ghostbusters came out in 1984. Four. I was born in '84. My dad took me to see the second one when it came out in the theaters, which was like '88 or '89. And I, I was already so absorbed. In loving Ghostbusters, that when I saw the second one, it really struck me how much it wasn't as fun as the first movie, and um, yeah, probably the part not, that yeah. you're talking about the part with what's his name's eyes glowing in a hallway. Yeah. Well, for me, the part that really just kind of took it over the edge was seeing Ray get possessed at the end of the oh, second yeah. one. Yeah, and he, him turning around, and I was like, "No, Ray!" Because I actually loved it. I I loved those characters so much, especially. Bill Murray, he was my favorite character. So, but this movie kind of looks more goofball comedy in a way that I don't think they'll cross. The, I mean, it already shows what's her name get possessed, and it's kind of funny, goofy. Right. I'm sure the Chris Hemsworth brief moment of him in that scene, he's probably possessed too, or something. It looked like he probably well, was. Well, that, that's how they kind of introduced it with the. Um, voiceover as yeah. he's walking in there well it could be one it could be that it could be like some sort of and yeah. like ending to go help them and slimers in it hopefully it could, he'll be comedy relief slimers funny yeah i, I guess know. it's just one of those there's such a stark difference between the feel of the ghosts from the first one for the first two and now well where and it's just, all cg and bright everything's neon day glow people said it looks like the scooby-doo movies and it does way. Like yeah. it definitely reminds also, me. Film is so different now than it was. It, it is in the eighties, and the eighties was such a like. If you look at the 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 color palette and even the saturation of of the first Ghostbusters, it's so much. It's a very darkly colored film. You know, right? There's a lot of grit and grain to the color of the movie and the color style, the coloring of the movie, versus how even Ghostbusters two. Which is a lot, which seems a lot brighter and has a lot more bright, less muted, thing less muted it. colors. You can tell that they got to buy better film stock. Right, and the ghosts look 
but and now because everything can look like a blue like can look at the highest definition you know all the time then you have to like go back and add it and i just don't think paul feig's gonna kind of go back to that use that kind of robert rodriguez mentality of kind of remaking it the way you know that style and i'm trying to think of what comedy director i would have felt comfortable doing this Edgar Wright definitely would, but it would be just nice. as bright. Didn't like, even think I could, of that. I could see that, but, but I, I, I could see there being more, oh, th- more of what Edgar I'm talking about. Wright doing Ghostbusters. Yeah, that would have been amazing. Maybe but, he will do the all male one they were talking about, or, or the one that I don't know. They're like, doing. They're doing more. Maybe than he'll this. do the sequel. They're or, doing more than this. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're trying to make a Ghostbusters. Is it, then again, thing. the original idea of Ghostbusters was that it was going to be franchises, so there would be the. Uh, There'd be the medical version of it. There'd be the firefighter version of it. There'd be it was this huge giant thing. It was originally supposed to be the plotline of Ghostbusters too, where there it's so spread out and so big that now they have worked themselves out of the job and are disenfranchised with what they're doing. Yeah. And then you know they were like, no, oh, we need to do an origin story and kind of show them how they got to this point. Yeah, you know, but, oh, oh. I, I was gonna say people really clamor for that third Ghostbusters movie that never came. It's out there. Well, that I mean, it's video the video game. game. It's the yeah. video game. But it, the, they got the actors to do the voices. They did. The thing about it, though, is that Bill Murray is so bored. Yeah, kind of. He kind of like, was in the movie. Like, in the game. If yeah. you listen to his voice, like, the thing about Vakeman was, you know, I'm sorry that, you know, I didn't get to meet you, sir, but I hope you're feeling much better. Yeah. Like, he has some animation to him, but in the video game, it's just like, yeah, come on, guys. <laughs> let's let's go kinda, bust some ghosts. Kind of like Garfield. His Garfield. Yeah, it was essentially over. Garfield. Well, I think that's the difference between Bill Murray and a studio. And well, Bill he Murray also had with, no interest in doing Ghostbusters. Like they managed to bring him back for it, but at that point, you know, and it was probably after they'd already gotten Dan Aykroyd, after they'd already gotten Harold Ramis, after they, then they finally like, oh, probably they had Her- Dan Aykroyd call <laughs> call Bill Murray and be like, just just come in, do it. Just do it in a week. Yeah. You'll get this much money. A lot of the elements from leave. it were apparently supposed to be what in one of the manuscripts for a third movie. Yeah, I mean, it, it it is interesting. I have the. It's a good game. It's kind of underrated and forgotten, but now I think it should make a comeback because. I mean, it's it's one of those. It's part of the reason why I stopped playing Activision games is because that was one of the games that got dropped by Activision because they couldn't see a way to make it annualizable. It's great and, just by itself. And yeah. I mean, I, from actually what I heard, the Wii version of the game is better because they go with more of an animated. Like, part of the problem was it was a 2008 game that they tried to go for like photorealism. Yeah. And yeah. it didn't quite make it and felt stilted, especially because of Bill Murray's performance. But the Wii version things. is more animated? Really? Yeah, it's more like uh, the real Ghostbusters. Huh. Is kind of what it, I used it, to love it does kind of like an animated movie version of it. So I, I, I think this was on the Cinefix about Ghostbusters, but the things you didn't know, but the fact that Bill Murray played Garfield, but the guy who played Garfield on the cartoon also played Bill Murray's Bankman character. on the real Ghostbusters. Cartoon. Yeah, I, w- I went and watched Funny. an episode of the real Ghostbusters, and I, I was loved like, that when I was a kid. I was like, yeah, that's that's fucking Freddy as um, <laughs> Ray. Yeah, from Sco- from Scooby Doo, Freddy is voicing Ray, <laughs> which is the weirdest thing ever. 
Did you ever have the toys? I had a lot oh, of the action yeah, figures. Yeah. I had the proton pack. I had the trap. I had the trap. My friend had the proton pack. See, I, so I, we I, what I had the slime gun, too. What I really want to do is get Graham a proton pack if I can find one. And actually, I Vintage. like the way the, <laughs> the new proton packs look for the... Yeah. That was the thing that uh, the props look... Although, yeah. Uh, the props look the way... They look real. They look homemade. They look, you know, stylized in that way. I mean, one of the biggest things, like, I mean, freaking the Ghostbuster trap in the movie is basically a shoebox with a coaxial cable. On yeah. It. It's just like, okay, cool. I mean, it does. With, with, with some black and yellow stripes painted on it. Right. You know? I don't know. I'll, I'm thinking, I'm not hating it and giving it a negative review on the trailer like everyone else on YouTube has the the mentality the high mentality have like 170,000 dislikes yeah. or something but uh the thing is we'll probably go see it just because it's got people we recognize and it's done by well, I, people that we know even though there are criticisms to level at Paul Feig's movie <clears throat> no as far as like style in some ways but having actually seen lots of his movies and stuff, I don't think that it it won't be a bad movie. It'll probably be really funny, it, and it might actually work. You know, as far as a as a Ghostbusters film, yeah. I think the problem is is that those movies are just so beloved to people that there's just going to be so much backlash. No matter, it's I'm, so there. So people now. I mean, I agree with you because obviously I'm that guy. Yeah. But people now who are like, oh my god, they're remaking our Ghostbusters different is how we felt about our X-Men being in leather costumes that were black and looked like crap. <laughs> you know, like they're now feeling how we felt when we finally saw, you know, the new version of there's this new X-Men that doesn't look anything like the X-Men. But this is more faithful in a lot of ways than it probably should be. I'm kind of I'm kind of hoping that it doesn't just follow beat for beat that first film. I it doesn't I mean it the only part of it that really looks like it's following it beat for beat. I mean not even beat for beat but as a beat yeah. is the librarian ghost. Yeah. That's the only part because the rest of it is about somebody who is has a device that is amplifying as yeah. opposed to it being an entire building. Yeah. But it, that wasn't even a plot point. That wasn't until they were in jail and went, nobody's made stuff like this before. Like, you know. Yeah. And that was kind of an afterthought. You know, a, a lot of the... It's a miracle that the movie came together the way it did and feels so rich. Yeah, and fe- and you can watch it a thousand times. As know? I have done. and Me as well. And I have the Blu-ray and it looks great on Blu-ray. And then that's the other thing. It's just like, how can you ever satisfy so many people who it's, love, uh, who have a very specific idea and a very spe- yeah. specific feeling about things? As I said, my my biggest thing is just little touches, like very early on after with the symmetrical book stacking. Ray goes, "Listen, da da da, do you smell something?" And you just see Bill Murray right behind him, just shake his head. And then sniff as 
um, the other two actors walk away, and he just sniffs and shakes his head and just follows after him like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> and it's little stuff like that, just the little reactions from each of the characters throughout that makes me love that. Yeah. You know? And I mean... It, it's the least Dan Aykroyd performance of Dan Aykroyd's life. Which which is what's funny is if you actually like listen to interviews, it's the most Dan Aykroyd... It's like his obsessions and personal... Right. Obs- with the supernatural, and he... He's a really hardcore believer, and but but what what I'm saying about that is that paranormal. it's the most likable Dan Aykroyd without any of the insanity that comes with Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, and it you know it's like Ray is really sweet. Like yeah. he's just like you know we're well we could really bust some heads in a spiritual sense, of course, and it's just so so nice and ni- almost naive the way he plays the character, yeah, and- whereas everything else is just very loud and brash. That uh, for me watching, it's like okay, this is like I, I just can't imagine. It's, it's this the isn't... role Dan Aykroyd was born to play. Exactly, you know, and that's it's that's my favorite Bill Murray thing besides Rushmore is Ghostbusters. Yeah, <laughs> Bill, I don't know. But Bill Murray, like, there's just the certain style that comes with Bill Murray and oh, yeah, I forgot all that Shack. stuff. So. <laughs> I forgot about Caddyshack. Yeah, mm-hmm. we'll talk more about that here in a second when, oh, oh, when I talk about oh. what I what I've been to. words. So, um, speaking of which, Nathan, what have you been uh, consuming? So specifically, I watched a documentary because I love documentaries, and I keep and it's something I can put on when I come home after work really late, and I don't have to finish it and and not. And and I can pick it back up and actually finish it as opposed to. I mean, I think that's what we that we movie. all really want is just not to have to worry about finishing. Well, but but what I but what I mean is like I don't have to restart the movie to to right, finish right. to finish it. I don't. I'm not out of the. You you can get back into the mood of the documentary and stuff pretty easily as opposed to a movie once you get out of sometimes out of the the mindset of watching it. It's like you you're two or three days later trying to finish a movie and you're like okay apparently i need to start this over because i don't i i can't i can't keep the feeling right but i watched a documentary on the national lampoon called drunk stoned brilliant and dead drunk stoned brilliant and dead it's it's on showtime it's on demand right now uh but it's it's from douglas uh, uh tarola Based on the book by Rick uh, Mayorowitz, uh, the documentary was made in, in 2015, or came out in 2015. It was made over a long series of years, basically. It mostly focuses at first on the found, the kind of founders from like switched from Harvard Lampoon to the National Lampoon, with Doug Kenny and Henry Beard, who started the whole kind of what became National Lampoon. Now. Being a child of the '80s, National Lampoon already meant the movies, and already meant right, uh, and and it meant the magazine. But even the magazine was already kind of secondary to the movies at that point. Yeah, see, but I never even knew about the magazine. Yeah. Well, I only knew about the magazine because of Mad. Okay. Because of Mad, I, <laughs> I knew about National Lampoon. The thing I didn't know <laughs> about National Lampoon is how just bloody, completely rated R it was. Okay. Like they didn't censor anything. It was very, it was. I don't want to compare it to Charlie Hebdo, but as far as like pulls no punches, 
completely offend like just uh, the way Playboy was in the seventies too. It's just of uh, just like hyper creative. The humor level is on like a high, high, high level. Everything's really intense. There's nudity. There's violence. There's sexual references. They're making fun of religion. They're making fun of culture. They're directly parroting ads of in other magazines. How they even got uh, the ability to print publish the magazine was they made a parody of Time Magazine. Yeah. That Time Magazine printed as an issue of Time Magazine. <laughs> and it's a straight up parody issue. So they, it's, and they got hired to do parodies of other... It of started other. as a magazine? It started out of the Harvard Lampoon. Which I always was, wondered where the title National Lampoon came yeah, from. Because Lampoon... So never looked into yeah, it. Once they moved from doing the, Har- the Harvard Lampoon, which it's was sometimes considered a fictional thing because nobody ever really saw... No one ever really owned it because nobody would show it to to other people. But the, these kind of... They kind of made it a, a real kind of magazine when they kind of took it over. It, um, and it's, you know, because of the Harvard Lampoon, you know, tradition we got later, people like Conan O'Brien and, you know, a bunch yeah. of other writers. But the thing is, it's like... There was this this movie specifically goes into just so much detail of like that transition of kind of mag it's kind of a document of magazine culture mm-hmm. you know which kind of doesn't really exist anymore it's kind of transition because the onion the type of humor in the onion is very much parroting like life now you know it's very pop culture yeah. it's very of the minute where this is like taking everything about our life that surrounds us and just like lamp lampooning it within the context of a magazine but also lampooning how magazines use ads how magazines tell stories how magazines do editorial stuff by doing photo they doing photo interviews with the writers and artists and like for some reason there's just naked women in the pictures <laughs> as well like it makes no sense but just this weird uh, kind of wit to it and this just kind of whole existence. And like this National Lampoon starting out as like a ma- a parody of magazines. But then like picking subject matter and stuff. And they have like, originally it was like they had hired these uh, like 1960s psychedelic artists yeah. to do the art and stuff. And like I think it was... T- the second or third art director they had was like, no, look, if you make it look like what you're making fun of, like specifically, you can almost put them side by side and not tell the difference other than the humor, you know, as far as the quality, as far as the look, as far as the design, like you're, you're aping every bit of it as opposed to kind of the mad, just go all out you know, madness. This is kind of like directly parroting every element of yeah. the of the kind of magazine culture. And I loved I never read National Lampoon, but I loved reading Mad Magazine later on in like high school and 
Oh yeah, especially yeah. when they were making fun of movies that I hated. The well, most. well, and cracked is kind <laughs> yeah, of yeah. Cracked was also that too. Cracked is kind of close to like what National Lampoon is. It was as far as like cracked's they, like a YouTube thing I watch. Yeah, now. yeah. Oh, there, they've. I've watched a few things on there. I, like, I watched them, but I'm addicted to after stuff hours spinning off there. of that would be like, like college humor is another thing that yeah, kind of funny, does it. Fun, yeah, funny or die. College funny or die. They're kind of in that vein, but the thing is, is What's interesting about uh, the National Lampoon is how many people's careers started at the National Lampoon. Mm. Al Jean, which we talked about, The Simpsons in the yeah. last episode, Al Jean working on The Critic. Uh, John Hughes of, you know, 80s movies. Yeah, <laughs> right. He was, he was on staff as a writer. He was actually won awards, if I, rem- if I can remember correctly, while he was a writer for the National Lampoon. Like, he was turning out such good stuff in the seven in the mid 70s for national lampoon um michael o'donohue is one of the other people he created the actual national lampoon radio hour which was this whole thing where uh they actually brought in a bunch of people from second city in chicago which is where we get bill murray gilda radner harold ramus chevy chase John Belushi, and someone else's name I forgot to write down because I'm an idiot. But this core of what becomes SNL, mm-hmm. right, um, starts in the National Lampoon. I was gonna say, didn't Rick Moranis come from that as well? I think Rick Moranis was originally because he came from Canada with right. SCTV. That's it, and then he transitioned into. Uh, but the the thing is, is the the actual radio hour. Which was broadcast, uncensored, <laughs> uh, but it, you had Bill Murray, Gil Radner, Harold, all these people working together, and John Belushi was kind of like the head of that group, uh, coming out of Second City and working on the National Lampoon Radio Hour and doing all these skits and doing all these performances, and then they started doing live shows of the Radio Hour, which led directly to the creation of S- of Saturday Night Live. Nice. And they lost all of those people to Saturday Night Live. <laughs> they just ripped it out of the National Lampoon. They just took those people and put them on TV. Right. And so it became like a version of what National Lampoon had been. And then you get Ivan Reitman, who had also kind of been a part of that sphere of National Lampoon working with those people and he said the first time he tried to work with them on a scene like John Belushi just kind of stepped to the side and said and said yeah, you can come back you you can leave <laughs> like him trying to tell them what to do but like without National Lampoon we don't get that group of people together right. on a larger stage we also don't get Animal House that is the first National Lampoon movie yeah, it's Animal House. See, but see, that was the thing is that I had always associated National Lampoon with awesome stuff, and but then right around the time I was entering, you know, high school and all that stuff, that's whenever it all just after Van Wilder just well even around the, the Van Wilder. I was gonna say time. it was around because even Senior Trip was yeah. kind of uh, and yeah, the kind of gross out humor was becoming bigger and. Right. And Tom Green. And I mean, even Van Wilder, I had to watch four or five times before I finally got to the point where I was like, you know what? I actually really like this. 
but it, it took a while for me to warm up to that one because that was still kind of a failed national yeah. lampoon and it just kind of built for me the more i watched it but that's like the the funny thing about and then about all that kind of stuff but caddyshack which was not an official national lampoon was written <laughs> starring all national lampoon people and the character of Doug in the movie is based entirely on Doug Kenny. <laughs> okay. Who you know and so there's this whole kind of world of stuff that like reveals about the kind of background of Caddyshack and stuff. But the fact that this this style of humor that we're that we're at now, the kind of improv the kind of Judd Apatow uh Upright Citizens Brigade kind of super more more based on del close and the herald and improv long form improv stuff right then you have where you as you have the sketch show and the radio show and you know stuff like what paul Tompkins is doing kind of stretches back to national lampoon and before with fire sign theater and stuff like that but it's like these kind of two different courses to take of like the kind of improv, heavy improv, it's all based on comedians and their reactions to each other, their ability to, to work together as a group, you know, improvising a scene or improvising a sequence, as opposed to building and crafting and every, being surrounded by a bunch of good writers and editors and creators of all types. Right. And putting all of that together instead of just having a bunch of comedians working together. But I feel like it's not a bad place to be, to have these different kind of modes. You know, Doug, David Cross is doing the talk Mar- Margaret, which I haven't really watched a whole lot of, but I mean, that's just one element. The IFC shows with like Marin and uh, <coughs> them doing like, you know, short form with comedians, but they're also doing like their full on written sitcoms and stuff. And it's just, I don't think com- comedy is as bad a place as as it kind of seems based on a lot of the bigger budget movies. But I think what what needs to happen is a tri- like a flip where the other doctrine gets to kind of take over for a little while to kind of let let the improv have its reign and then switch back. And then they can switch back once they have a new crew of people who can do that really funny, really intense. They they have their John Belushi or their Bill Murray or their the kind of new person who's they have a vision, they have a style, they have a care they have a voice, you know, that adds to that thing. And I think that's what we're missing. Well is it, a voice. But I also think part of it, I mean, um um every frame of painting has talked about this where comedy just in general and not even just talking about the improv stuff just you know every almost everything has become super lazy with static images or establishing shots that's you know well because it's really cheap and really fast right and it's like oh hey we know this character's gonna move to this area you know based off of oh hey let's do a second unit shot of a car driving yeah cool you know well but that's also second unit director not being very good well yeah but you know that's also the movies aren't asking for anything more but yeah they're they're like oh just get the characters to the next or they want it to look like 
they they want it to all look like this right you know so just shoot it like this i mean that's one of the things going back to ghostbusters is it's not just quick takes no it's scenes being allowed to breathe and those characters moving around in the scene going okay cool let's you know let's just riff for a little bit rather than it being a whole just cut single character what did this person say reaction shot and also the thing i've noticed with some sitcoms now you can tell that one guy just stood there and said here's here's the line now you give me 12 versions of that right your your reaction just make up 12 12 one-liners you know and they don't get a writing credit for that you know (laughs) they don't get a you know those 12 one-liners that they just improved i mean that that's one thing we talked about with um mike lee films and uh yeah mumblecore is that it literally is them going okay this is kind of what the this is the feeling of the scene this is what you know this is here are the characters and then everybody acts improvs in the scene to come up with what it is and then they write down what they did and then they just kind of keep working on it until it becomes solid and well, they have I, a working script. But I also did some research and it's like he knows where the characters are going. Right. So the thing is he guides the entire improvisation. You he, know? he does, but they don't have an active script at the time. But the characters are usually like created. Like, yeah, he has yeah, a, he knows that he knows, he knows the, characters. the characters and he knows the arc of the characters. Right, it can change during that improvisational process. Well, I, I know, I know, it, like in his older movies, like Naked, there's certain scenes between two characters where it basically got to the point where they were about to have sex on camera, and he'd finally go cut. And then reset, start over, and, you know, go from there. Well, and that's the thing is Apatow was listed as writer-director on Funny People. But, like, he came up with all this, the, the arc, the kind of right. character version of Adam Sandler, all that stuff. You know, and, but he's not listed, but Seth Rogen and Adam Sandler are listed as writers, you know. But Judd Apatow is, even though most of that dialogue was most likely improvised and written down over the course of. There's actually some back, uh, behind the scenes footage where, you know, Judd Apatow's here, Pat Oswalt has a laptop open, and uh, I can't remember her name, Judd Apatow's wife, who acts in almost all of his movies. Uh, and. Uh, Leslie Mann? Yeah, Leslie Mann and, and, uh, and Adam Sandler are doing scenes. And doing versions of scenes, and they keep rewriting, you know, and they keep writing down new reactions and then trying new things and seeing how, like, this kind of totally different way of building a film, you know, and trying to build it out of this weird natural place as opposed to the kind of authoritarian rule of the screenplay in some ways. But I don't know. It's, it, th- there's no right way, there's just more interesting ways to us. Right. You know, and that's what I think is missing is there's less people doing the more interesting version. Or they're doing it in a skit for two minutes and then moving on instead of trying to blow up that idea to a full 90-minute idea. So I feel like Key and Peele might be, because they have a voice. You know, Key and Peele has a voice. Right. Those, Those two comedians, even though they're improvisers, I think they might be able to to push that on but uh i've consumed other stuff but i've taken up most of the time so uh justin what have you or do you do you 
Justin, what have you been consuming? <laughs> um, well, I've got a couple things. Um, one, I played the game Firewatch. Have you guys heard of this? <laughs> so it's a it's written. It's actually done by the guys from Idle Thumbs podcast, um, which. I mean, if nothing else, as a gamer, totally worth listening to because they were originally video game journalists. Then, you know, um, one of them worked for uh, GDC. Yeah. And so he was part of the Game Developers Conference and getting all that stuff set up. So he got, you know, started looking at stuff and then more like, oh, these are very interesting mechanics. They're huge fans of Far Cry 2. And, you know, like the physicality of that game. So, like, one of the things is when you open up a map, you see where you are on there's no mini map there's just an actual paper map you pull out but because you have a compass you can see where you are yeah. and kind of you like the character as he encounters stuff will draw on the map the um it's written by Sean Vanneman who did the walking dead season 1 the telltale games yes. okay so it's all about choices and the basic idea is you are this man who for the summer decide in the 80s decides to um, become basically volunteer for Firewatch yeah. in Yellowstone. And you have a your kind of handler that you talk to on the walkie talkie, and it's about you exploring this kind of central mystery kind of over the 90 days you're there, but also talking with your handler and how you respond changes the story. Is that the. I, I read reviews, and the premise seems really cool, but also this idea. In my head, that someone said is that you can see somebody in a tower like far away from you. You, you. Uh, I, I don't, guess you can wave at them or maybe talk to them, but you don't know who they are. Yeah, right? you you never see them as okay. a character. Okay. Um, and you only see like drawings of yourself based off how somebody else has seen you. So it's all about your relationship basically with a person over a walkie talkie and and you're isolated too right you're, yeah you're in it's a- it's you know you're by yourself you only run into maybe a couple people over the course of the story or interact yeah. in any way and you know it's, it's basically like the way they recorded the sessions was based off of like they wrote the entire script and then the writer went and redid it and whenever they did the sessions, it was essentially um, based off feel. Yeah. So, like, for this segment would be, well, he's terse and he doesn't want to talk. Or this would be them joking or them arguing or whatever. And it, it's, you know, you can literally choose to tell the person to shut up and never talk to you. And that <laughs> wow. would change your relationship. Like, they, they'll still talk to you because they got to get you to do stuff. But if you are more open with them, then you start to develop a relationship and it's really interesting. It's one of those that you can semi open world. There's one point that they basically just kind of say, Hey, go explore. Mm -hmm. And you can, you know, let them know whenever you're ready to continue with the game and you could do it immediately or you can run around for three hours and just kind of explore the area. But really good physicality. Like every single time the guy's walking out of his, the tower there's you know it's one of those with a spiral wooden staircase and there's an upper level and every single time he reaches up with his left hand to touch it as he's moving down the stairs like just little stuff like that and it's an indie game right yeah uh it's done by campo santo it's i think twenty dollars are you playing on like the ps4 yeah yeah it um actually they have a really cool gimmick for the pc version which is um at one point you find a disposable camera 
and it's in the 80s, so when you take a picture, <laughs> you don't know what they look like. So you go through, and you can take pictures whenever you want. You could never take a picture if you wanted to. But on the PC version, once you finish the game during the credits, you get to see what your photos are. Hmm. And then they give you a link where it has uploaded your photos. Oh. And then you can actually purchase copy four by six well uh, glossy prints <laughs> of them all <laughs> strange <laughs> which is which is awesome because yeah. you know that's a better pre-order reward than most things yeah it's just kind of like oh hey cool i can actually buy the stuff that i experienced and remember what i experienced while playing this game <laughs> so but it, as i said it's one of those where all the decisions you make help inform the story you know it's another one of those where they have a set story they're trying to tell you but the context of it changes based off how you act. So to bring it back to the fact that, so you're getting sent pictures of a fictional world built in a computer that are then become being made real and sent to you as part of your physical extension of your experience of playing. And you're the one that took it yourself. Yeah. 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 So, Oh my god! <laughs> this is this is getting more meta. <laughs> yeah, but you know that's as I said, it's one of those things. Like as I said, they're big fans of Far Cry too. But um, well, I can tell because of the landmass and the the map and how the mountains and the trees and moving. Yeah, and I mean, and, and even with the map, you can have the map in front of your face and still control your character to run forward. Yeah, and so you could get into all sorts of trouble. Like, did you beat it? Yeah, you did. Yeah, it takes about three, four hours. Mm. Um, I've been trying to get Lou to play it because it's a short game and it's based off their, you know, the person playing it experience. Yeah. So those short games, you know, some a lot of people complain about pricing on really short games and if it's worth this amount. I um, say the one short game that I played that's totally worth however much I paid for it was called Journey. Yeah. I mean, Journey definitely. That um, was a great. The one I can think of that I got really burned on, but it became one of my favorite games, was Max Payne 2. It was a short game? Four hours. Oh, wow. What? That's like, that was like a AAA title. Yeah, four hours four hour. for a $50 that. game. Good grief. Jesus. And, but it was one of those that I ended up playing time and time again. and um, Maybe because it was short? Yeah, I mean, and it was this, you know, kind of gritty noir sort of story the other thing i love about it is that um i got it for the pc and there was a modder who made um basically mad um max Payne kung fu <laughs> which um was very like you could do drunken you could do different style of bullet dodges yeah. and then he even put in a leveling system so at one point you were fighting with a bow staff like re- really interesting just to yeah. play with those because Max Payne was the first game that really incorporated bullet time after the Matrix came wow. out. Yeah. So I know that they made at least one shitty movie of Max Payne. Yes. Has anybody talked about going back and trying to like make a better adaptation? Like, um, a- I mean, Max Payne three actually was probably the closest you'd get to. Um, Oh, they made more than one of them? Yeah. They, well, no, I'm saying the, oh. the the video game. Oh, okay. Those Max Payne guys are doing other stuff now, I think. Well, they, they'll probably... They've, I think, hinted that they're going to do another game, but Max Payne 3 was the closest to, like, um, um, Tony Gilroy. No, not Tony Gilroy. Um, Dan the, Gilroy? No, the, the Man on Fire, um, uh. all those type of... I'm trying to remember the director of those, but the... Oh, that, Man on Fire. 
was that? I'm looking it up. Okay. Um, but that type of visual flair. Tony Scott. Tony Scott. So the Tony Scott sort of. Um, He's dead. Yes. Yeah. But but <laughs> he committed the committed suicide. The the yeah. type where you know you have the different uh, subtitles all over the page and like the camera will like do double triple images whenever somebody's drunk or you know all that yeah. visual flair. They really worked that into the third game. So. Which I I actually watched a. It was after enemy. Uh, watching any enemy of the, of the state. Okay. I watched a little featurette with Tony Scott, and sometimes they will have six cam. They would have six film cameras going with different film stocks, different film rates, different uh, different color, pe- different color palettes and stuff, so that they would have that kind of multiple footage to cut with and stuff when was he made his that, movies. That the Denzel movie. Where, that's, fire, where yeah. he's no enemy of the state. No, that was Will Smith and Gene Hackman. It's actually it's, it's almost an unofficial sequel yeah. to the. Oh, it's, a, it's straight up an unofficial sequel to the conversation. Yeah, I was, I was wondering. I was thinking of the Denzel movie where he's fighting terrorists in New York City or something. Like that. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, I don't remember. Yeah, never mind. Um, I think yours will. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know what movie. I think you're that was the Siege or something like that. Yeah, I think it is called the Siege. But um, anyway, the Max Payne movie. Um, it was starred uh, Mark Wahlberg, mm. <laughs> um, and yeah. I believe Olga Kur. No, no, no. It was Mina Kunis. Um, Mila Kunis, whatever. Anyway, um, the problem with it is that it came out after Constantine, oh. and so a lot of the visual flair of it made it look like it was going to be like this supernatural thing dealing with angels and demons because of this drug that people were using and it like stealing people's souls. It is Mia Kunis. Was yeah. Constantine that Keanu movie where he fights demons? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Based off of the uh, DC. I almost Jared wanted Jared to see that when it came It is out. really, really good. It really? is worth watching, yeah. yeah. I saw a scene where he like traps a demon in a mirror. I thought that was pretty Yeah, that, I mean, actually that's uses the, stuff that they're only just now starting to really possibly incorporate into the bigger DC movies because the Spirit Destiny Right is in that, and well, and, and the thing about it is, it it's basically the Matrix 4.0. Like they even use green filters mm. through the entire thing, but it has such he has such a great attitude and the way that everything rolls together, the character relationships, it does a great job. It's not necessarily Constantine, but it gets the asshole quality well, of the character. It uses, it uses a lot of imagery and a lot of ideas from pre from Hellblazer, right? Uh, Specifically, the Garth Ennis run, him having cancer, uh, the electric chair he uses to Does travel. Does he smoke a lot? In the yeah, because yeah. we were talking about Mad, and Mad was making fun of Constantine. And there's a clip, a drawing where he's got like 20 cigarettes in his mouth, and they're also coming out of his ears at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I mean he, he's he's a big smoker. The yeah. they kind of change things around, but one of, it has one of my favorite um, favorite depictions of Satan in there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that actor from Far- Fargo, right? And uh, Armageddon. Yeah, trying to remember his name. First guy. Yeah, um, um, he was also in. Um, he's been in a bunch of stuff. Well, he was into the in the game until dawn, which I talked he about was? previously. Uh, yeah, Peter Stromer. Yeah, he's he's in there as Lucifer and Stromer. Sorry, he um, refers to him as um, Constantine. Refers to him as Lou. Yeah, you know, what took you so long, Lou? It, it's it's awesome. Mm. Um, so the other thing, um, well, I also watched a movie called Splinter, 
which was came out or was actually filmed here in Oklahoma. Okay. It actually one of my buddies, uh, Dustin Haynes, who's been on this podcast before, helped edit that movie. It's basically a creature. It's a creature feature, but it's kind of like the thing, but low budget. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, uh, there was actually hard times, like beef jerky or whatever, in the yeah, then uh, the convenience store and stuff because they filmed it in Oklahoma. Yeah, so it was. Um, I think I've seen literally five minutes of it. it. It's well, it's interesting because it's like it's this creature that if it it's like kind of a zombie weird thing, but it has these spikes, these splinters that if it hits you, hey, cool, you're completely infected at, or you're inf- infected and it will start taking over your body. But then at one point it incorporates all these corpses and all these people it's killed into this giant thing like monster. Like it has that kind of weird paranoia to it. Like it's not as in depth because it's three characters and two of them have been held ransom, you know, a hostage and all this stuff. But there's definitely some, you know, there's the idea of the body parts, like they cut off fingers are part of the the creature's hand and it's autonomous from the rest of it. So, you know, and that at one point, um, one of the characters got a splinter in his hand and it actually takes over his hand and arm and like breaks it, trying to get to the people who are not infected. Wow. So like very kind of dark, weird, twisted. Um, I liked it overall during the early, the first time you really see the creature, the cuts are so quick that I really couldn't process what was happening. Like it almost looked like this ragdoll body was doing like cartwheels and stuff. And one character ends up dying, but I literally thought that it just hit them, like cut them and hit them. But turns out, no, the character died in the, in the scene. I was like, Oh, okay. Well, I guess, Oh, they're dead. Okay. 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 I got it. I got it. I got it. So, just kind of one of those weird things. The other thing I watched was um, this little series called The X-Files, season 10. Wow. So, there were were things I liked about it. When I watched the, like, everyone was like, I saw on Facebook, there was like a meme, when you think you're watching X-Files, but you're really watching Truth. And they go on that whole, the guy delivers this whole fusion of every conspiracy theory simultaneously. And I was just like, wow, uh, <laughs> this is awful. Well, oh. see, there, there are things I liked about it. Like, they did a good job putting the char- characters back together. But the catalyst for the first two episodes is um, Joel McHale from Community and um, a, couple, a couple other... Um, he used to be a host for one of the the soup the soup um him playing a youtube truther basically who begins you know is about to rattle some cages and it's the whole thing about the alien dna and you know whatever and it starts out really strong now there is a whole thing with david Duchovny just completely you know, going on a rant where he combines every conspiracy theory in the first two episodes, but you're still like, 
you know what? Okay, I'm down with it. I, I kind of get this from Mulder. That's what he yeah. can. And they start back up the X-Files. And at the end of episode two, you see Cigarette Smoking Man still alive being like, you know, oh, we've got a problem. They've reopened the X-Files. Yeah. And you're like, fuck yeah, let's do this thing. And then the next two to three episodes are one-off stories. Or Monster of the Week. Yes. And Why it, do six episodes if you're going to do Monster of the Week? I, I don't know. Um, like, they... And even Mulder comes back and he's, he's sitting there just throwing pencils into the poster, just going like, well, it turns out most of the things that I thought were aliens are actually completely explainable by this, 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 and this. And they have... They have a couple of good, like, creepy Monster of the Week episodes, but then they have one that's just completely goofy where he leads, meets a lizard man who got bitten by a man who then turns the lizard man into a human. <sighs> but the lizard man is also super effeminate. So it almost is kind of a weird metaphor for... Well... And... It, it was a fun Thanks, episode, but it totally did not need to be in there. They had one with these twins who have powers, and this guy who's able to basically kill somebody, you know, by super high frequency sort of thing to the point that they commit suicide. Didn't really need to be in there. There now they do bring in stuff that deals with their child that the two characters had together that they put up for adoption, and like one of my favorite like there were three or four really good sequences in those middle episodes that everything else didn't need to be there but those were really interesting like both it shows both Mulder and Scully separately imagining what their life would be like if they had kept their son interesting but um there is one episode that I thought was worth it in the kind of monster of a week thing and it deals with Muslim terrorists who blow themselves up and murder a bunch of people, and one of them is barely kept alive, so Mulder takes shrooms to communicate with him. So fringe? Yeah. And, but it it essentially, and it does that, like, they have a whole, like, thing of him going to a country club dancing and the lone gunmen show up. Like, and I was sitting there like, wait, there's, are those the lone gunmen? And I looked it up. Yes, it is them, but it's just weird to know that I recognize them after 13 years. <laughs> yeah. They look, they have good characteristics about them that I would recognize. Yeah, but... Um, I mean, I was expecting them to show up anyway. Yeah, but they just show up. Their faces just show up. They aren't actually yeah. <laughs> in that. Um, but they introduce a younger variations on the Mulder and Scully characters. Okay. Like, it's the exact same thing. A young man who is FBI agent who's totally believes in all the stuff and a redheaded scientist who doesn't well but the, and then they have it swapped to where Scully works with the um the believer and you know so they work with their younger you know their opposite younger counterparts and it introduces them and then the very last episode picks back up the plot line from the first you know episode Wow. And for me, and they put info dump so much into that, including having Scully go into a Mulder like rant about the truth of all things and how all this stuff is. So, why, did, why were the other episodes there if exactly. you needed to info dump that much? Right. For me, it felt like they maybe had to introduce one of those episodes 
could have included all the things like it they do they do do stuff with Dana's mother dying and being in a very similar situation to what Dana had to go through whenever she was um younger and all this stuff but it felt like they could have worked those into a larger story that all six episodes were about this massive conspiracy to use um to have humans use alien technology to infect the populace and then it ends basically with them deciding that they need to find their son to help solve the MacGuffin of the week Mulder almost dead and an alien ship appearing above him and that's it so it doesn't even actually resolve the plot lines that they introduce in, in the sh- in the six. This sounds like the problem of the X Files, right? And so, it, it, right before the final the final one goes, they go, "Yeah, we're thinking about introducing new. You know, we're thinking about continuing. You know, we've had really good turnout with these new episodes, but we haven't talked to any of the talent. But we're, we're thinking about doing more. It's like, well, you clearly set it up to continue to do more." But you just sequel baited us. Yeah, it it really you ended. You did the end of Green Lantern. Yeah, it it, <laughs> it it really needed to be all six episodes. It needed to be a miniseries. It did. It need it needed to be yeah. <laughs> it needed to be an extended movie. Yeah. Do do a tight six episode miniseries where they are focused on one case, or t- or. Cases that interrelate to each other. Right. And the most that they interrelate to each other is, hey, with the twins that are separated, they were a separate... They were separated through adoption. So that makes them think about their son. And then the next one has to deal with her mother for part of the episode. And that's kind of like... Sounds like they should have called Vince Gilligan to come in and uh, be a part of the writing staff. Right. It it needed more focus than what it got, and as I said, by the last episode, I was just sitting there going like, why are you introducing all these plot lines when you've got 20 minutes left? Because that was the X-Files. Right. So... And that's the other thing, like, even... Because, like, the first movie... Was was just as long was just two episodes, with a bigger budget. Right. It, it didn't resolve or answer any of your questions to anything. Right, which is kind of what you were wanting from an X Files movie. Yeah, was to be like, hey, let's actually answer a question instead. Uh, instead of introducing five hundred other questions that don't relate to anything that we've just. Right. That whereas I want to believe I haven't watched that one. I know I remember going to theaters to see the first movie, but I never watched the second one. I never did either. So, but yeah, as I said, just kind of overall, there were things I liked about it, like Mulder tripping out on shrooms, <laughs> completely worth it. They did undercut it a little bit by having the Dana, the Scully, you know, stand in, say, oh no, I gave you these placebo pills, but then he was able to actually finish it. And I just, personally, I like to interpret it, interpret, interpret it that she was just trying to cover her ass and actually did give him what he was asking for. Yeah. But they kind of leave that to where you think that she didn't and he just tripped based off of placebo. But still, it's like, come on, guys. Just X-Files are supposed to be kind of fun and play in this arena, not 
just fuck with you over it. So, Skylar, what have you been consuming? Uh, wild onions. Okay, delicious. <laughs> uh, this isn't nerdy, but I it went. I went down to Holdenville, Oklahoma, for Nation. They do a uh, all you can eat wild onion dinner. Wild onions, an indigenous plant, southeastern mostly. Uh, a lot of southeastern tribes. Creek and Seminoles, Choctaws, Chickasaws, Cherokees. And when they came over here to Oklahoma and the Trail of Tears, they were noticing this plant was kind of following them, and it was indigenous here too. And it's it grows this time of year. People pick it fresh, and a lot of the patches where they grow are random, and they're secret. Yeah. A lot of Native people go out there and they'll grab it, and you cook it, and you, fr- you cook it, chop it up, clean it, and you cook it with eggs. You fry eggs and cook it. Wow. And it's great. Uh, and anyway, going out there to Holdenville today for that, driving through Seminole, and we woke up. One thing I've always noticed and I loved about this state is um, seeing all of the abandoned houses, old-timey farm-looking places. All the, yeah, the... In old. the woods. And I've always wanted to take pictures of those places. You know, you can see the old, rusted like mechanical works in the front yards and backyards, you know, that kind of thing. That rural area, because those places are abandoned because a lot of people had to move out of those small towns into the big city because they had to find work, you know. Yeah. And those people who are left there in those towns, a lot of them are just elders. Um, that's kind of an, a thing, you know. Like my family and them, a lot of them had to migrate to California in the uh, around the 40s and stuff to find work. There was a great mass exodus of Native American people who moved over to California for work. You know, there's even a a movie made, specifically a, a black and white film made about Native Americans living in San Francisco or L.A. who all get together and have their, you know, they they sing 49 songs I think at night, and that's interesting just thinking about that kind of history of that. You know, these abandoned farmhouses and old. How is this not nerdy again? (laughs) (laughs) And the towns are all cobblestone almost. Brick, brick stone buildings everywhere, you know. And you get some of that uh, art, art deco architecture stuff. Old Coca-Cola signs and stuff like that, you know, painted on the side of the buildings. Enjoy Coke, enjoy Pepsi. It's in those towns, you know. Places where my grandparents grew up, you know. So anyway, I did that, but uh, more of the nerdier side of things. Pokemon. <laughs> Pokemon had a 20th anniversary. Can you believe that? It's kind of weird. Now, it started, I believe, in 96 in Japan. That's why it's been 20 years. But technically, the first two games, Red and Blue, came out here in 98. And I remember the cartoon, I think, hit first. Yeah, I, and, I remember the cards and, and stuff being a big yeah. deal in junior high. So the cartoon hit first, and I thought it was I was way too old to play it. But my friend then in you found school, out you were wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I had a friend named Nick Peterson who had Pokemon on Game Boy, and I watched him play it. And he's like, "This is really fun. You should play it." <laughs> so I did a whole lot of work for my grandma, and she gave me money, and I went to Sears and bought Pokemon Blue. <laughs> Well, 18 years ago, I guess, you know. Anyway, I have here with me, I know y'all can't see it listening to this, but I have a Nintendo 3DS called the new Nintendo 3DS, and it's not the XL version. It's the Japan-only smaller 
version of it. This one, you can put face plates on it. And they've actually released it in America two times. The first was with this game, Animal Crossing. And the second time is what I'm holding here, the Pokemon version. I have Charizard on here. It's pretty boss. What game comes preloaded on there? Uh, Pokemon Red and Blue ah. come with this. And what's crazy is there's a thing called a Pokemon Bank that it's like an app that you can download and pay an nominal fee. And you can transfer Pokemon from these old games into that, in which you can transfer from there to the more recent generation games that have come out. Nice. Yeah. But uh, to not go overboard, I guess what I'll end on saying is that I've been watching that 11 Ah, yes. Only three episodes, because <laughs> that's all that's been released. I, I keep... This has been a long week for me. Just... <laughs> I I I'm, I'm now unemployed again. Woo-hoo. So found yeah, that unemployed. Yeah, I, and I've been staying up till four or five o'clock in the morning. Even before that, for some reason, just not able to sleep. So when Monday hits, at you know, as soon as it rolls over for Hulu, it's like okay, cool. Hey, there's another episode of eleven twenty two sixty three, and I keep waiting for Monday to hit again. So because now the days never end, it, and it gives me something to look forward to on Mondays now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... And I'm kind of glad I'm not binge-watching it. I'm actually enjoying the build-up to each episode. kind of reminds me of when I would watch Band of Brothers or The Pacific on HBO. Right. There's many series, and each one builds up, you know. And this show's decent. I like it a lot. I do. I like James Franco. I think he's all right, you know. And uh, So is he the uh, greater of the Francos? <laughs> <laughs> the greater of the Francos. Yeah, there's also Dave Franco. Oh, his, who his looks brother. Exactly like uh, <laughs> a weird version of Zac Efron. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I first saw him, I was like, "What's Zac Efron doing in this movie?" And someone's like, "No, it's Dave Franco." And I was like, he, "He's slightly stretched in the face." Yeah, it's, yeah. about Dave Franco. <laughs> yeah, from uh, Twenty One Jump Street. Yeah, yeah now I just that Zac Efron's did Neighbors, it's gonna be. It's even it, harder. Yeah, It'd it's be like. Yeah, which 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 ones in the movie with cuss words and uh, <laughs> Seth Rogen? Both of them. <laughs> they just need to do a movie together so oh, that fuck, no one yeah. can ever tell them apart again. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like. There's some questions I have about this. Of course, who's the yellow card guy? You know? Right, right. Who I hasn't. He didn't show up in the last two episodes. I think. Maybe. No, he was in the last one. Um, whenever he went to. No, no, he wasn't. He no, was he, in I, the first, maybe parts of the second one, because he sees him in the hallway underneath that ton- that arena where he went and saw Kennedy do a speech. Right. Or maybe but that was, that was the that was still the first episode. I oh, think. that was okay. Yeah, because okay. the second episode is entirely him in the small town. Oh, in Kentucky. Yeah. See, that was kind of an interesting segue too. There's some stuff going on. Like, I like how Chris Cooper is like, the past will mess with you if you try to change the past, you know? Right. There's these events that kind of just sporadically pop up. Yeah, it's nice to see uh, Josh DeHamel doing his thing. Like, yeah. I did not recognize him for until, like, he actually sat down with him. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, shit, okay, cool. It's nice to yeah. see him playing kind of a different character. Mm-hmm. Um. It's good. I don't know how many episodes are left. It's a short series. It's so. uh, eight episodes total, oh, so there's five more to go. It oh. is interesting who is doing Only this five. because me and Christy, my wife, got really involved in The Flash, 
and I absolutely love that first season a whole lot. Kevin Smith was right. It's really good. Yeah, the first season looks like I like it way more than Green Arrow, which I think is kind of boring in my opinion. And I've never watched Gotham, and I haven't watched Supergirl. But The Flash is really cool. I love those characters in it. And so we were trying to get into the second season, and we got lucky and got to see like the first four. And then they took out the first two, and then they skip ahead to like episode seven. So there's like a gap of episodes missing. So I don't know, maybe when the whole season's over, Hulu will put them all on there. Because Netflix won't put anything on there until the whole season's done with, well, I they're guess. they're on season three now, aren't they? Who? Flash? No. Oh, they're okay. still on second. Yeah, they're still doing second. And it's hard to go to places like comicbook.com. Because they, they have, have... Well, they actually do 20... Something. 22, yeah. epi- 22, 23 episodes. Oh, okay. Yeah, they have, like, spoilers on comicbook.com and stuff about episodes, and I try to not read it or anything cause right i want to see what else happens this whole earth two thing is kind of interesting yeah I, whoever I mean, zoom is and i just i we're, we're stuck off of episode four so. <laughs> but anyway like, that's what i've been consuming but one last bit when you were talking about national lampoon and you mentioned snl and stuff like yeah. that those it reminded me of this article i read on the av club uh, there's a thing everyone should look at called My World of Flops on the AV Club. They're all written by an author named Nathan Rabin. And this one, it's all about stuff that's flopped, whether it be a movie or a show. This one talks specifically, case file number 25, it talks about Saturday Night Live's 1985 to 86 season. And um, this one has quite a bit of people in it. There's Robert Downey Jr. Right. Yeah. yeah. This is- one There's of those controversial seasons. Joan Collins. No, wait, not, not Joan Collins. What the heck am I saying? Words. But um, before that, though, the one that I remember the most is it talks about the uh, 1980 to 81 season that had Eddie Murphy on it and Joe Piscopo. And um, it was a really bad – It was actually it says it was an aborted season. And I think they had a guy named Rocket on there who they were trying to spearhead as, like, the next Chevy Chase and make him, like – head of like the SNL comedian kind of guy and later on he killed himself in life tragically <sighs> but anyway go to my my world of flops off the AV club check that out just type it in Google search and <laughs> I'm glad I thought the guy stopped writing these but he kept it going because one of the recent ones he talked about was like the Jim and the holograms movie that came out <laughs> oh man oh and then something about Robin thick i guess blair witch 2 it's it's all just that's my boy star wars holiday special um he did this one on jamie kennedy's first night 2013 new year's eve broadcast and all the crazy stuff that happened during that (laughs) but uh yeah check that out okay so i guess the only question left is skylar where can people find you on the internet just Nathan, where can they find you? Just <laughs> just go to Nathan. Uh, you can find Skylar at Eat Dogs. Uh, just Eat Dogs. Eat Dogs Instagram. <laughs> <Come on. laughs> and that's all it's gonna be, folks. Okay, that's all it's gonna be. But I will be at Super Bitcoin April second and third. Come to Super Bitcoin at Oklahoma City State Fair, and it'll be great. Woohoo! Lots Woo. of retro gaming. You uh, you all might reach out, uh, John Schnapp. John. Schnepp, who just made The Death of Superman Lives. 
is now starting his new documentary called Sweaties, The Rise of the Super Nerd. And he's <laughs> okay. going to be going around to cons filming. Nice. So you might see if the people will reach out to John Schnepp to come and do interviews. Is that one of the guys from the Schmoes thing on YouTube? No, he's, he, oh, di- okay. he directed uh, a bunch of... He's from Metalocalypse, actually. He directed... Oh, okay. He wrote... Or he directed and created a bunch of the character designs for Metalocalypse. Nice. I do know we have... Um, this uh, one guy who used to host, uh, maybe it was, uh, we have special guests at Super Bitcoin this year. I'm, just, I'm supposed to be promoting it because I'm a volunteer. Phil Moore, who uh, used to host MTV's game show called Remote Control. He also was a host on Nick Arcade, which anyone who ever watched that back in the day, that was a really cool show. Kids playing video games on TV. People watching people play video games. Yeah. Also, why, why, why would you do that? <laughs> there's also all those YouTube guys like Smooth McGroove, who's actually from Oklahoma. Oh shit! I did not realize that. I just yeah. saw him post an update video where he's just like, "Yeah, I haven't done anything like in three months, and I, I've made like six arrangements, and just never. I've been reading though, so I went from one nerdy thing to another." Yeah. <laughs> he's pretty amazing. All his acapella video game. Yeah, he was music. just talking about how he did not ever want to post his video or his face on it much less record himself doing it eight times and have his face up there eight times but yeah it just sort of happened so also uh, one of the other guests i like is the game chasers that's a really cool show to watch on youtube there are these two guys that have their own version of american pickers but they go around looking for old video games wow anywhere they'll find them (laughs) so go ahead nathan that's hilarious Uh, you can find me on the Dubious Consumers Facebook page. You can also find me on Twitter at NateWad, on Tumblr at NateWadNeutron. Uh, yet again, I'm trying to keep adding content to the Facebook page just so there's, you know, actually stuff on there. Uh, hopefully, if I can, you know, find a little bit more time in the next few weeks, I'll try and write, uh, I have this idea for a column that I've had for like a year and a half of it introducing non-superhero graphic novels i'm hoping to get that off just just so there's a little bit more information on stuff to check out if you're not really interested in superheroes but you are interested in like realistic storytelling outlandish art uh uh, outsider kind of art styles uh things where people don't have big muscles you know (laughs) uh what if i like the big muscles i'm gonna hopefully get get that on the website so we can also go on to the facebook page but we'll see how how well how good i do hopefully it'll happen uh uh, justin have you prepared the litany i really haven't prepared but we'll see how this goes um you can find me uh, at uh justin justinheard.com at justin on twitter real justin on facebook pinterest.com justin instagram justin uh, pretty much anywhere. I even have a Tumblr. I've got an Amazon page. Um, I do have a YouTube channel that I'm starting to upload stuff to. It is uh, youtube.com forward slash drunken rain, or you can just search for Justin Heard. And uh, pretty much anytime you search Google for Justin D. Heard, you're going to find me. Yep. Um, you know, I also have a book out there. It's called Of Gods and Madness the Faithful. Uh, it's about a mobster who becomes a god only to find out they die too. Uh, you can find that at bit.ly forward slash O G A M 
TF. It is only available on Amazon now. You can buy the book and get the ebook for free for twelve ninety nine, or purchase the ebook by itself for three ninety nine. So, um, Skylar, do you have a final thought for this podcast? Got to catch them all.